As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full of I think I'm full of Shit, I was so full of Yeah, I was so full of I think I'm full of I think you're full of I think you're full of Shit Hello everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host Mark Bickney and with me as always is my better half, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Really good, Mark. How are you doing? I'd best not talk about it. What, one thing I want to emphasize though, as open gaming slowly starts to be a possibility in some parts of the world again, first of all, be grateful for that opportunity and be mindful of the fact that many other people don't have it. But also remember to thank the unsung heroes Many people pay lip service to the Game Explainer, although in my experience, nobody actually gives genuine appreciation of the Game Explainer. But there's another person, and I, I wanted to stress this on Twitter, and I want to be very sincere about this. That person at Open Game Nights, either in the past or in the future, that sees the new face and reaches out and says, Oh, hello, you must be new here. My name is Blah. Who are, would you like to join a game? We're starting a game of Blah. Would you like to join us? These people, saints and heroes. The very heroes of our hobby. And uh, I stress this in part because I have not met any of these people in Vancouver. Also, uh, on that topic, try not to be that guy. And by that guy, I am referring to the employee of a game store the other day. I won't mention who, specifically. Who went in the back and said, I heard a shriek and I thought it might be somebody's girlfriend. And let me tell you, when you say crap like that, what you're doing is you're saying to all of the women that happen to be there, you're not really here. You're just ancillaries. You're not actual persons. You're just plus ones. I could have smacked the guy. I was so mad. Anyway, moving on. There are heroes and there are some behaviors that we need to correct in our hobby, suffice to say. A little nudges in certain directions would go a long way, I am sure. Oh, I assure you, there were many nudges that this person received in response. <laughs> So this is a board gaming podcast. We're going to talk about games. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year in the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our topic this week is trench coat games. 
namely games designed by Vincent Adultman when he's on his way back from the business factory. I assume that's what we're going to be talking about. Very particular subject. I don't know why you want to talk about it, but I, I, I let's do it. So, Aurayurus, this week is Catan Starfarers. Walker, what do you have to say about that? I had have to say that if I was ever forced to play Catan, Catan Starfarers would be the one I would want to play. <laughs> forced being the word? Yes. <laughs> I'm a bit chagrined. I, I talk often about trading away games that we review. Catan is one of those games that I traded away only because I knew that there were a small number of people that appreciated it. I really like Catan Starfarers. I know a couple of other people that are that are big fans, but broadly speaking, it has a number of problems. Number one, it's a Catan game that reliably lasts about two hours, which tends to alienate even Catan fans, and then there's all the people that hate Catan generally, and so I knew it wasn't going to get to the table very often. But the reprint published by Cosmos a couple of years ago, and of course it got the predictable five to six player expansion, although why on earth you'd want to play Catan Starfarers with five or six, I don't know. It was a lovely production, very, very expensive, but I think it's a quite worthy game, and I still encourage you to go try it if you haven't already. That is the game we played exactly one year ago, and then reviewed it. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark, we got together, not us in person, but... Thanks for rubbing it in, Walker. As as uh, as swag, and we played a game called Sunset Over Water. And what you're doing in this game, you set out a grid of these paintings, and they all have iconography based on sort of what the painting is, be it a waterfall or a mountainscape or, you know, there's a set of, a set of symbols. And then there'll be a row of cards along the top will be all the buyers, all the people who'd like to buy paintings and they'll say what kind of painting they want uh, we, i feel like a waterfall painting today or it might be <laughs> three different symbols right and then everyone's going to pick uh from a deck of cards that they have i think there's about eight cards it's one of these uh sort of pick your initiative card you know you pick your initiative card and there's some abilities on it as well so not only is it going to say you know when you go in initiative order it's going to tell you how many paintings you're going to paint that day and how far you can move on the grid in order to paint those paintings so everyone reveals their card. Whoever has the earliest time gets to go first. They move, they paint their paintings, and they fulfill their contracts. So that's where the sort of, you know, decision space or the hook of the game is, is that the sooner you go, the faster you snatch the paintings that the people want that day, and you're taking all of the contracts as well. So the people that come play after you have less to choose from they do not refresh immediately so you sort of have to time it out right you could even just sort of skip a turn and like sort of collect a bunch of paintings so in another turn you can fulfill a whole bunch of contracts and there's also like a sort of round bonus thing like you know end on the corner of the grid or move sideways or something so there's ways to get bonus points as well i i thought it was a great little game didn't take long to play easy to teach and that is sunset over water it is designed by Elwater Barf, Steve Finn, and Keith Majeska. Put out by Delight Games. I find the theming hilarious. So basically there's a whole bunch of patrons who stand around like in an RPG saying, someone bring me a picture of a waterfall. And then someone s- speeds by and says, here's your waterfall, bye! And then rushes off exactly. to the next person who wants the mountain. It's like, here's your mountain, there you go! Yeah, yeah. well, I was picturing more like, you know, like a square and everyone, like, People are have their hand up there. Waterfall here. I, I want a waterfall. And, you know, you come know, <laughs> rushing in and you hustle them their waterfall. It's yeah, it's you know very big in the artistic world. I'm sure that's how it really works in real life, right? 
it's like fine art patronage meets the New York Stock Exchange. Exactly. Wow. The art on the paintings was fantastic. You get these little, nice little wooden meeples of, you know, people painting pictures. And all in all, it was a nice little experience. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I got to play Isle of Sky from Chieftain to King. This is the filler by Alexander Pfister and Andreas Pelican, filler-length kind of game, published about five years ago. And uh, people really, really like Isle of Sky. I don't, I'm not quite as in raptures with it as everyone else. It's got a kind of a clever auction mechanism, but it's the kind of clever auction mechanism where a mistake or a forced mistake can really upset the economy of the game. Plus, you're very limited in what you can buy. You can only acquire one tile. And generally speaking, especially in somewhat larger player counts, which the game seems to attract, uh, generally there's something on the market that's good for you. And the clever bit about it that I like about Alice Guy is the scoring conditions. You get these four scoring conditions, and as the rounds go on, you score the set scoring conditions at a set pace. So in round one, you might score scoring condition A, and then you score that again five turns later, and then two turns after that in combination with other things. That part is neat, being able to time things so as to maximize your score. But honestly, uh, I mean, it's all right. I don't object to it very strongly i just don't see why everyone else is in such raptures over it because the tiling is simplistic the economy as i say is a little bit fragile in some strange ways and you can be forced into misplays and it's really only the scoring condition that i think is remotely good but what happens as a consequence of that too is sometimes it just means that you don't care about a whole bunch of the tiles that are coming out maybe it's the case that in one game you really care about boats but in another game the boats don't matter at all so a tile comes up with boats and no one's interested so it's all right i don't object to it i'll play it if it's put in front of my face but a lot of people really seem to like isle of sky and i'm not one of them i am uh, i am one of those people that love isle of sky i'm really eager to try the expansion that came out quite a while ago i've yet to even play it and i just want to go back to the you did say that you can only buy one tile but there is a little bit of abstracted way where you can buy more tiles because you sort of, you get to set you the price them, of the yes. tiles in front. Yeah. You sort of can buy your own tiles by pricing everybody out. So there is sort of a way that you can buy more than one. And then, and just to double back onto the victory conditions, like you said, you know, it's A, B, C, or D, and they're all going to score at different times, but it's also the fact that they're like tiles. So every game is going to be completely different. And they're going to be a different order, never mind different victory conditions. Even if you got the same one, it could be in a different order. And anyway, and the fact that there's so many different symbols on the tiles. Yeah, in, in of... one game, you might score for boats. And in a different oh, game, you stop. might score for sheep. <laughs> it's an entirely different game then. Mind-blowing. <laughs> so that was Isle of Sky from Chieftain to King. Another new game that I got to play is a game called Mysterium Park. And if everyone's ever heard of it, I'm sure they've heard that it's like sort of Mysterium Light. And I really feel that this pulls uh, what the essence for Mysterium is for me and puts it into a much smaller and faster package. There's no, it's 100% cooperative, so it's much like the Polish games. There's none of this silly, fiddly, scory bits at the end. You're sort Mm. of just eliminating your, you're trying to find who's innocent. So everyone's trying to, you know, figure out who their person is. And then you try to figure out, you know, uh, rule out certain locations and then, at the very last round, then you're trying to narrow down uh, the person and the place, you know, in certain columns. I'm not going to go through the whole rules, but it's all just, you know, playing the cards, getting people to guess certain cards, and then the game is over. And I thought they did a really great job with, you know, just boiling down what 
makes Mysterium fun for me anyway. And how do they streamline Mysterium into Mysterium Park? It takes the competitive part out of it. It cuts it down to only two rounds of guessing, you know, the person and the place. You don't have to worry about the, the weapon as well. And it just seemed to flow a lot faster than normal Mysterium. Good to hear. And the fact that they don't have the the sort of like the card where you have to figure out, you know, who who has everyone, you know, the, the big screen. It's it's just like a uh, code names card that the ah. ghost has. And it says, okay, they, because there's, there's a grid, it's like there's a pink dot there. That means that's the one that I'm, I need the pink person to pick. And the green person needs to pick this one. And then it's, you, that's what I mean. S- nice streamlined design like that makes it go much faster. Would you go back to normal Mysterium after playing Mysterium Park? Uh, I, 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 if it was sort of like a, a sort of like a planned game, like a lot of people wanted to play it, and so you know, it's like a, more of a full, you know, fill, uh, fulfilling experience as opposed to a filler game. For I sure, think. I'd go back. Played another solo game of Imperium: The Contention. I talked about starting the solo campaign last week. This is the very awesome sci-fi 4X-y, not quite mostly combat shooty, shooty, space fighty, fly, fly, zoom, zoom, zap, zap game. And the solo campaign I remarked very favorably on last week, largely on the basis that it felt like the normal game. And I have to say, having seen some of the more scenarios in the solo game, I have to issue a bit of a caveat. In that, some of them feel a little bit less like a standard game of Imperium the Contention, and they start to feel a little bit more puzzly and or unique to the solo experience. Case in point, I played one scenario where very early on in the gate, I got ships with uh, the boarding capability. Now, boarding in Imperium the Contention is a keyword that says, if you destroy a ship with the ship, you take over the ship you destroyed. Namely, you've sent over Marines or the equivalent, and you've taken over the ship. Well, in the competitive game, that's just pure upside. In the solo game, though, it's a bit of a disadvantage because what you're doing when you do that is you're taking the AI deck, which usually has about seven or eight cards, and now you're taking one of the ships out of rotation entirely, and what that can lead to is very, very powerful cycles of AI actions. So you're actually incentivized to destroy ships rather than take them over if they are relatively weak. So that's a bit weird, uh, a bit of an edge case, but it's representative of a broader problem in that, again, the economy of the AI is radically different. And in some of the scenarios, that doesn't really produce uh, what I would call somewhat perverse outcomes, but in other scenarios, it does. In another scenario I played, I was put under a very, very, very demanding clock because of the powers the faction started out with. And so there was effectively only one way to win the scenario. And so it felt a little bit more puzzly, like a lot of the solo combat type game AIs end up being. They don't feel like a back and forth or an actual skirmish. They feel like, here's the puzzle. There's only one way to go and kill these guys. You have to kill them in order, or you're not going to win. Now, that's a good news, bad news situation. The bad news is uh, that's obviously the less to my taste. I, I don't enjoy games like that, and I want a solo game to represent the overall multiplayer experience wherever possible, and so sometimes Imperium the Contention doesn't do that. The good news is, though, if you want to look at things optimistically, which sometimes with difficulty I am able to do, that does represent that in the solo campaign, you're going to have a variety of different gameplay experiences, which is not nothing. So if you appreciate the more puzzly aspect, or if you don't object to it in the same way, or if you like finding out new interactions with keywords in this way, finding out that boarding can be a double-edged sword, then that's an advantage, and it shows that the campaign at least is not the same thing over and over. And even though I don't appreciate the changes that it introduced, I appreciate that there are changes. And so I will continue with the solo campaign, especially because solo games of Imperium, the contention, are very, very quick, and I do enjoy just playing with the toys that they give you to play with. And so that is my continuing experiences with Imperium, the contention. I'm going to talk about two games now, because I've 
played these two games a lot two player and only two player and then this week I've got to play them with three and the the differences were kind of cool crash octopus I talked about how I wish the tentacles did more like when you roll the die it all you do is move the tentacle you know it doesn't actually hit anything well in multiplayer games guess what it does because you move the tentacle near you miss the guy's ship with the die but the tentacle now goes right beside it they are very top heavy next person can just aim up that tentacle and it tips and hits the ship and Ah. explosion super fun great mechanic it's just better with more people and then dice miner dice miner I played a lot solo and two player and with three player all games of dice miner use the same number of dice you can fill them out in three times and you're done so with more people you play with the less dice you're going to have in your pool or available to you so there seemed to be a lot more sort of uh hate drafting and making sure certain people didn't get some dice and then there was a little teamwork between the two people that were falling behind they would trade the beers back and forth giving them dice that they needed and and choice when they needed it and i thought that sort of new mechanic new sort of way the game played out was a lot more interesting I played Dice Miners multiplayer, and actually I found that the scarcity of dice... Yeah, the trading beer back and forth I will absolutely grant you, but the scarcity of dice just meant that there was less opportunity for hate drafting. We've talked about this before in the context of drafting games. One of the reasons why Fairy Tale is so genius is because you draft five and play three, so the opportunity cost for hate drafting is so low. In the context of Dice Miner, when we were playing two-player, I felt that the opportunity for hate drafting was more. There were so many dice I would end up end up with. There were more frequently the case that I could look over and see what my opponent needed. When you're playing three-player and you consequently have so many fewer dice that you're going to end up with, most of the time I found myself in those instances just focusing on what I needed because I didn't have the luxury of of bothering to hate draft. But I'm glad you had a contrary experience. So just quickly, Crash Octopus designed by Nakoto Sumoto and published by Itten Games. Dice Miter designed by Joshua Du Bois and Nikola Rosinski and put out by Atlas Games. Played some more Regicide. Love Regicide. Still haven't won. Love Regicide. Paul Abrahams, Luke Badger, Andy Richdale, Badgers from Mars. Go play Regicide if you haven't played Regicide. A marvelous co-op game with just a standard deck of cards. There's a really, really good tabletop simulator mod and or, let's face it, you probably have a deck of cards somewhere in your house. Play Regicide. Marvelous, marvelous hidden gem that not enough people are talking about. Brutally difficult. I'm still looking for that first win. Go play Regicide. Why aren't you playing Regicide, Walker? Because someone left... You have a copy in your home. I know. You effectively do. True. I should get a deck of cards and get it set up for sure. Because everyone in our group definitely loves it. Played more Caravan. And I'm only talking about it because it's just see, it is changing a little bit over time, right? The the randomness of the cubes coming out just seems to be becoming more prominent, right? Yeah. As you, as you deliver the cubes and then it triggers a... A restock, and it's like, oh, look, my infrastructure is already set up to deliver three cubes almost right away. And it, it is a very, you know, tactical, strategic game and interesting. But when the 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 randomness either goes against you or in your favor, it doesn't seem so much so. And I've heard the response on the on the part of Caravan Defenders. Caravan's great; it's a lovely, cute little game. But you're absolutely right you can end up in these situations where cubes just fall out of the sky and or show up the complete opposite end of the board. 
and actions are so scarce. The defenders say, well, you know, just don't trigger a cube explosion unless you're in the position to capitalize on it, which is effectively saying, oh, don't score on your turn. Just give up the opportunity to score because it would help someone else downstream. That's a that's a terrible Doctor kill Dr. Lucky problem. I do not endorse it. Get good. Well, you're supposed to sit and, and sort of sear into the future and see when the cubes are coming out <laughs> and set up ahead of time and then trigger it. I think that's what they want you to do, maybe. Well, when the cubes come out is going to be known. You know when a delivery is going to prompt more cubes to come out. What cubes will come out, you don't know, but anyway. It's not only which cubes, it's also where they're going to be put. It's true. Played some more The Quest for El Dorado. Not to claim too much credit, this was one of, with great difficulty at one of these aforementioned public game nights. Three of us were sitting down, we didn't have a whole lot of time, and I saw that the store had a copy of The Quest for El Dorado, and I said, hey, I'll teach you this. And then I saw someone wander up with his kid, and he was, you know, looking meaningfully at the game collection, and I, I, I mustered deep within my reserves, and I managed the Herculean feat of saying... Would you like to join us? And then I immediately had to hide my face in shame because social interaction makes me nervous. Uh, so we played a game of Quest for El Dorado, and there was enough visually exciting stuff going on that the, I'm going to say, five-year-old uh, was able to be diverted. It's a shame. I, I would have set up Rhino Hero Super Battle had I known that a kid was going to be joining us because contrary to the slings and arrows of slander online, I do, in point of fact, play very well with children. And the child involved was able to play with the wooden figures and talk about what the barriers represented. And that was all all well and good. And I was able to teach the Quest for El Dorado to a whole bunch of people. And they really, you know, they, they everyone agrees with the obvious truth, which is the Quest for El Dorado is a great twist on deck building. And having played Kubitos, which was also an attempt to marshal vaguely deck building aspects in a race context, I have to say that the Quest for El Dorado does a slightly better job of making the race a salient element of the actual game. There's more blocking involved. There's more of a sense of tempo of looking ahead of what, knowing what you're going to need to go ahead to, to traverse those barriers, as opposed to Cubitos, which, you know, sometimes you can just stay at the starting line for half the game, build your combos, and then you're off to the races, literally. The quest for El Dorado remains my least preferred way to play the game. I think that the Golden Temples expansion is vastly preferable, but this is not to say that the quest for El Dorado is not a very, very worthy experience. Uh, Reiner Knizia definitely knows what he's doing. I'm going to step out on that limb and say that. So another game of the Quest for El Dorado, highly recommended. A very, very good intro game, a very good family game. Uh, an excellent first deck builder if you want to approach it that way. And like many of Knizia's solid outputs from the past five years, extremely accessible with lots of quality decision making. Very highly recommended, the Quest for El Dorado. And lastly for me, Quacks of Quillenburg is being played a lot. It's being enjoyed here between me and Butterfly. And we finally got to play with the Alchemist expansion. And what it does is actually introduce choice to this game, Mark. You actually, Wait, what? Yeah, I know. Hold on to your hat. Wow. So what you do is it, it, it puts this board above your, above your cauldron, and you get to pick a card. It's uh, like a whole bunch of different characters based on silly things like earworm or flappy ears or or hunchback or all of these different things it's going to give you a unique card and then at the end of the first round depending on how many different color of ingredients you used it's going to allow you to move up this track and then on your following turn you can spend these points to do stuff 
that's based off of your special character. And I thought it was great because you can either save the points to, to get the bonuses because the higher you go up the track, you get automatic bonuses and you lose those points or you can save the points to trigger the special ability. And I thought it was a nice way to introduce actual game into <laughs> this experience. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. So in, in this context, the diseases are yours. You're not actually curing them. I I am not a hundred percent sure. I think you're trying to help these people. I think, and you're oh, okay. Adding different ingredients in, and they're going to either let you, you know, move further along the track. You know, when you play your bad chips, I think I think that's what Butterflies was. Every time she drew a, a white token, she could go uh, spend some points and, and and move them double the amount along her track. And mine was whenever I played a token on a gem space, I had like a little mini market action where I could add tokens to my bag. And then that that's only two of the like eight different characters that you can add to the Alchemist expansion. Very nice. This was a review copy that was given to us. And uh, it's designed by Wolfgang Walsh and published by Schmidt Spiel. Just as a note, thank you for reminding me, Regicide was also a review copy we got from the publisher. I played a couple of games of Inish. It's spelt Innis, but of course, the pedants from the internet will, of course, crawl all over you for mispronouncing a word. This does not apply, of course, when they are mangling the French language, and I get accused all the time of being a pedant for pronunciation, which is utterly false. I never correct people on pronunciation. But anyway, it's spelt Innis. People say Inish, and if you say Innis, they get very, very snooty about it. Oh, don't you know... It's pronounced Inish. Anyway, <laughs> I have a complicated history with Inish. I talked about this in the question period. I actually played it again in, in part because listeners will not leave us alone, or specifically me alone, about this game. And in the game of Inish that we had, it really did encapsulate my entire experience with the thing. There were moments of genius... Moments of, like, actual genius. I really like how the drafting interacts with the actions that you're going to take. There's some lovely bits of tempo, because passing an inish doesn't mean you're out for the round, you can come back in. But if you're a little too aggressive with that, and your opponents also pass, well, then you can be done. So it's good to stall, but sometimes you have to move quickly. That part's great, that part's lovely. And then there's the combat system. Oh my goodness. Uh, both games were determined entirely by people miscalculating in the combat system. And one of them was in the classic situation of, oh, I'm going to get involved in a conflict when I really shouldn't have started this fight to begin with, and in the process I'm going to throw the, the, the game to the third player. And, I mean, really, I've seen this happen so often in the game. i played Inish about 12-ish times now. I don't claim to be a master, but I've seen so many of these fights happen where it just gets incredibly attritional because one or other players just keep making the same mistake and get bogged down for no apparent reason, or there's ridiculous king-making involved. It's just, it's so, uh, it's so bizarre. There are a lot of great things in Inish, but I don't think it really comes together in a compelling polished package. I like the victory conditions. I like the drafting. I like the tempo. Just the combat system is just, uh, ruins it for me every darn time. I think that's what increases the disappointment is that the other parts are so good. Absolutely. That it makes these other things just amplified in the painfulness. And it's honestly one of the reasons why I'm okay with playing Inish every once in a while. Because I can sit there and I say, okay, Mark, the combat's going to be nonsense. Something weird's going to happen. Maybe the game will proceed and somebody will win because they played better, or maybe the game will proceed and, the, and somebody's going to win because A and B got into a stupid fight and C or D is going to walk away with it. 
just accept it and enjoy the drafting and enjoy the lovely pacing elements and then accept that at the end something weird is going to happen. Now, that's not always what happens. Again, I don't want to I, I want to stress. It's not every game that goes off the rails. It's just a very often in the game there is a combat that goes off the rail rails, one or two combats, and sometimes that determines the game. That's that's my position, that's my experience with 12ish games of Inish. I don't claim that this is exhaustive. I agree with you. It's a little painful, the, the, the sort of wasted potential or, or opportunity there. I wish Christian Martinez would design more games, but there we are. So, Inish designed by Christian Martinez, released by Matago. Finally for me, I get to play a game called Mafiozu. This is the anthropomorphic animal gangster retheme of Rudiger Dorn's 2005 title, Louis XIV. I've talked about this before. If you're going to do a game about organized crime in the Eurosphere, you're going to have it with anthropomorphic animals. This is about who's going to succeed. Wally Longtooth, the walrus godfather, uh, or godfella, as they say, at least making it gender neutral, of this weird sort of animal land. Anyway, so Louis XIV was an area majority game. It was actually the first in Alia's midsize box series. And it's really, really enjoyable, engaging, and tight. And it involves one of the mechanisms that Rudiger Dorn loves to do. He did this in Goa. He did this in Louis XIV. He did this in Traders of Genoa. He's also done this in Istanbul. He loves uh, towers or stacks that leave bits behind, frequently, though not necessarily, on the diagonal. He just loves doing this. And this is definitely something that happens in Louis XIV slash Mafiozu. The big difference between the two, because much of the game is exactly the same, is that in Louis XIV, you had these mission cards that you were trying to succeed in, and they gave you points and special powers. In Mafiozu, instead of being dealt mission cards of varying difficulties, and you could select which difficulties you wanted to go for, there's this grid of buildings that you can go and occupy with your goons. I actually... This is one of those areas where it's fascinatingly the case that randomness actually improves the quality of decision-making and trade-offs involved because the random mission cards actually forced you to go and seek out specific goods to satisfy those specific missions. When it's a large grid of available buildings, pretty much anything you get is going to be able to get you one of the buildings. Now, is it necessarily going to be the power that you most wanted? No, but it's going to shake out to be more or less the same thing. As a consequence, when playing Mafiozu, I paid zero attention to what tokens I was picking up. Because I, I just knew any two tokens I had would be able to go and get me a building. This is in contrast with Louis XIV, where I knew I needed to satisfy specific requirements to go and satisfy these mission cards. Now, some of them are more specific than others. I'm, it's not always the case you need a specific combination. Sometimes there's a little bit of flexibility, and there are wilds. But nonetheless, that added bit of restriction made some of the trade-offs and made some of the tactical considerations more pointed. And I very much appreciated that. That, and I very, very much prefer the theme. Uh, I prefer historical themes to weird, cartoony, anthropomorphic animal gangster themes. Your mileage may vary. And Louis XIV was in a small box, whereas Mafiozu was in a large box with the attendant costs involved there. Also, they called the money Zulars, which kept making me think of RuPaul saying to somebody, you're a winner, baby, that they'd want a cash tip of 5,000 Zulas brought to them by Anastasia Beverly Hills. But maybe that's just me. So anyway, that's Mafiozu, published in 2017 by Super Meeple, but I prefer the original uh, 2005 Louis XIV, both by Rigor Dorn, but to be frank, they're both very solid, very enjoyable area-majority games. But I'd stick with the original. Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, I'm going to start off with some rants, because, you know, that's what I do now. 
We got to. I live for it, Walker. We live for the negativity and the clicks. Okay, that's how we roll here. <laughs> so uh, they're all. They're both about Kickstarter stuff. Just because I got another sure. update about a game coming out. I'm not going to like point fingers and and name games, but and I don't care when I get this game, Mark. It could be six months from now. I don't care. What I do care about is the language that these guys are using. They're saying, you know, ah. they're, they're between a rock and a hard place. They have no choice. It, it, you do have a choice. You know, it's it's one of these other things where, oh, we're afraid that it looks as though the retail version is going to come out before everyone gets their Kickstarter package. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's, well, there's nothing in the, here's some, uh, where's the actual wording? Holding holding the retail release of the game for too long could be huge damage to us and our international partners. It's a risk that we cannot afford to take. Do you know what's a risk, Mark? A risk is giving money to a company a year ahead of time for their game. That's a risk. Yep. And I work in retail. We have videos and books that come out all the time in boxes that say, do not put on the shelf until a certain date. It's not that hard. Anyway. Like I said, I don't care when I get the game. It's just these ridiculous excuses that are starting to anger me. I agree with you. I wish there was a little bit more transparency. I'm a little bit different from you in that we've had this discussion before in the context of Ares Expedition. I don't even think there's a tacit guarantee anymore that the the Kickstarter backers are going to get a game before retail. If you don't promise it, I don't think it's part of the pledge. But I wish that when publishers would make these decisions i talked about peterson games last week when when they make these decisions they just be frank it's like look we're gonna do this because it's best for our bottom line it is what it is we promised you certain things we promised you exclusives you're gonna get the thing later but you're gonna get more of it for less money that's the deal we entered into as opposed to look i'm so so sorry like, like some sort of weird guilt trip and martyr complex i agree with you it's painful and secondly it's just these campaign systems i've gone off on them multiple times how you you know you think this is going to be the one you're going to enjoy well it's not you're throwing your money away again and there's so <laughs> many on the crowdfunding right now and i'm just so disinterested in all of them and just made me think that what is it with campaign systems that I enjoyed, right? I And I think it is just the getting together with people and it's the, you know, the shared journey and the thought of, you know, this experience that you're going to have. So when you just see these systems, you, you just think of that, of the potential that's there. You're not thinking of the actual game mechanisms, at least this is for me. And maybe, maybe that's a problem. There's I'm just going to list all the ones that are off right now. There's one called The Lands of Gazir, Divinus by Lucky Duck Games, Legend Academy, Bantam West, uh, Adria, Paths We Dare Tread. That's the the Zaya, the Drift System uh, designers put out one as well. Descent 3rd Edition is also out now. So, so many of these huge campaign type systems that I think are just not going to, you know, be heard of in a year from now. Do you want to hear my cynical speculation? Yes. I have no idea if this is true. This is just some sort of guess. It is conceivable that what is motivating sometimes the desire to put in a campaign system is the the knowledge that we've now moved into a slightly more periodical model of game publishing where the vast majority of games are played once or twice and then never again. And the hope is, like, well, if we put a campaign system in, maybe that will make people feel they have a sort of investment to bring it to the table more and more, and therefore the perceived value of our good will increase. I don't know. I'm pretty confident that this is false. It's just a possibility that occurs to me. 
on the topic of Kickstarter, there's a Kickstarter going on now that was called Earthborn Rangers. This is brought to our attention for a couple of reasons. One of them is it's partially designed by the Sadler Brothers, and we're big fans of the output of the Sadler Brothers. The other is they, more than other recent Kickstarters, have made a pledge towards sustainability in terms of their manufacturing processes. More and more publishers I've found on Kickstarter and elsewhere have talked about being careful about using sustainable materials and sustainable manufacturing methods. This I applaud. Especially since, as somebody who does not travel much, drives seldom, and eats practically no meat, my ecological footprint is almost entirely determined by my game collection. That's by far the most taxing thing on, on the world that I, I engage in. But the, the, the trick is, and again, I am still deeply cynical. I looked over the Kickstarter for Earthborn Rangers. They don't know who's going to produce the game yet. They don't have a manufacturer lined up. So that's one thing. So you don't know how sustainable this is going to be at all. The other thing that I couldn't help but notice was that in their vow, they said, we vow to make game components out of, quote, biodegradable, compostable, and or recyclable materials. Okay, well, uh, all right. So how much work is that word or doing? Because recyclable is a weird word. Lots of things are recyclable. Whether they're going to get recycled is another thing entirely. Like where we, where I used to live in happier times in Kingston and where you live still, there are many, many things with recyclable symbols on them that go straight to landfill in Kingston, much like every other municipality. Because if it's if it's a, a, a designated code one plastic, almost certainly going to be recycled. If it's a code four, five, or six plastic, in most places in North America, that's going straight for the landfill, but it is still recyclable materials. Anyway, maybe I'm being conspiratorial, but I would believe in these pledges a lot more if they knew who their manufacturer was going to be. So as it is, more and more publishers are starting to take this seriously, are starting to pay lip service. I am at least optimistic enough to point out that this lip service, that this engagement, that this value, that consumers and producers care about a starting to look at this, that is a step forward. But of course, I'll believe it when I see it. All right, two things that are interesting on crowdfunding. They're putting more crap in dice, Mark. These are dragon eyes, <laughs> dragon eyes, you know, like eyes of Sauron or dragon eyes inside the middle of dice. Something to look at if you're into, you know, a set of uh, D&D dice. Check these out on Kickstarter, dragon eye dice. And secondly, Excavation Earth, we've talked about it. We enjoyed our, our couple of plays of it. Had a very neat sort of stock market. I don't know if, if stock market's the right word, but sort of buying and selling mechanism. Supply and demand. Supply and demand system where you're putting guys out to buy artifacts from Earth because something awful happened to the humans. We don't know what. So up on Kickstarter right now, they have a expansion called It Belongs in a Museum. So more Excavation Earth on the way. Not on crowdfunding, in honest-to-goodness retail. A couple of releases by Ravensburger uh, are, I'm very, very enthusiastic to try. One of them is Alien Fate of the Nostromo. Apparently it does a very good job of evoking the original Alien movie. Also, Disney Gargoyles Awakening. I am a huge Gargoyles fan. Loved me that cartoon. It was great. Macbeth was my favorite character. He was awesome, and I loved everything about him. Well... Loved everything about him. I, I appreciated how grim his storyline was, suffice to say, especially in a, in a, in a children's cartoon. Not I, I, a sort of grim emphasis on self-destruction, not again seen uh, until Steven Universe. Maybe that's why I like both of those cartoons so much. At any rate, 
These are two releases by Ravensburger, and they are, for the moment, Target exclusives, which makes me uh, deeply envious of those south of the border that are able to take advantage of such things. But this is, again, I think, further evidence of some of the increasing quality, both of A, licensed properties, and B, big box board games. So yay to both of those developments. I am a huge fan. So maybe, Mark, when you get back in a year, we'll do some role-playing, because I've backed Avatar Legends, the role-playing game. (laughs) I am a huge fan of everything Avatar, be it Korra or Aang, and I'm super hyped. I'm not a huge role player, but I'm just super hyped about, you know, having adventures in this world of the Avatar. And it's the Kickstarter is doing great. There's going to be tons of content. I can't wait to check it out. It's the most successful role playing Kickstarter of all time, I think. That's what I've heard. And lastly, for me, there's some news from Tasty Minstrel Games. So, Mark, you might not have Ugh. to hear uh, Deluxified ever again. They... Honestly, I feel I, I feel so guilty, but that was one of my reactions. I don't want to dance on anyone's grave, but I thought, well, if there is a silver lining to this, it's maybe the death of the word deluxified. Of course, the opposite might happen. Maybe if they lose their trademark on the game, maybe everyone else is going to start using it. Oh no, that's terrible. Oh my goodness. Anyway, finish finish your explanation. So they had uh, they had a Kickstarter sort of already uh, completed and sort of in the works, and they're going to be doing refunds for that. It's called Emperor's Choice. They've said that they're uh, going to sort of sell off all existing stock and inventory that they have and hopefully in about two to three years they're hoping to start up again and start producing games again we can hope so finally for me it looks like alexander fister has finally started to learn his lesson uh for a long time we've been complaining about the theming in such games as mombasa and maracaibo where fister says i realize full well that these are periods of horrific horrific violence exploitation and all manner of human tragedy but uh, just pretend that this is an alternate reality where you get to diamond mine in africa as the dutch without any of that awfulness happening it's like why did you choose to theme the game this way this is a strange choice anyway uh, not only is fister going to be re-theming some of his games going forward so that they're actually not tinged with really really truly terrible colonialism uh, some of his upcoming original releases seem clearly influenced by these decisions. I'm talking specifically about the upcoming game Boon Lake, which is going to be published by DLP Games. I just want to read you the first bit of the description of the theme of the game Walker. With a group of pioneers, you have left civilization behind to settle along the shores of Boon Lake, a long-forgotten region inhabited by humans long ago. This unexplored area beckons you. There you go. See? Why couldn't you have done this for Mombasa or Maracaibo? Nobody else is around. Or if they were here, they're all dead. It's easy. Look, look, the whole Eurogames are themeless thing has been done to death. It's it's obviously an exaggeration. I would argue that lots of quality Eurogames like Tigers and Euphrates have a lot more theme than are given credit for. But, but, you can resituate them so they're not about colonialism. On that topic, re-theme Goa, please. Nice. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic, which is trench coat games. And this came to me from a listener named Ryan. It was in our Q&A segment. I just thought it was too good of a question to uh, answer in the normal segment, and we decided to make it into a topic instead. So these are games that have all sorts of little sort of mini games or sidebars. And just by way of explanation, why do we call these games trench coat games? Well, they're kind of like a series of smaller games stacked on top of each other, hiding inside of a trench coat. 
I'm sure Mark and I are going to have different interpretations. I'm hoping that all the listeners will have uh, different interpretations, and I'm sure there will be no backlash or three-page forum threads going on after this episode. Certainly not. So these are not, for me anyway, these are not games like Space Cadets or, or Galaxy Trucker, where... Space Cadets is a game that's supposed to have a bunch of mini games, or Galaxy Trucker, where there's like two different phases that are totally different, but you know, it's all part of the game. So that's not what I'm talking about either. Nor am I thinking about games like Captain Sonar or Merchant's Cove or Root or Vast, where everyone's already purposely playing their own little mini game. This is something different. Well, I'm going to push back a little bit already. Uh, I agree with you about the radical asymmetry. So if you're playing Captain Sonar, if you're playing Root, one of the reasons why those games work is because you all come together at the end of the day doing the same thing. Uh, Similarly, I I agree with you that Galaxy Trucker is not a trench coat game because ultimately you're building your ship and then in your second phase you just see how well your ship did and you're building your ship to spec, or at least I am, you you claim to never look at the cards that are coming up for Galaxy Trucker. I don't know whether this is some sort of perverse notion of purity or just inability to devote the necessary bandwidth, either of which I suppose I could respect. But uh, to my mind, I think Space Cadets is kind of an illustrative example because precisely because unlike in Space Cadets Dice Duel, which is the Space Cadets I like, In Space Cadets, at various times, you will all be expected to do various of the different posts. And I think that the manner in which Space Cadets fails, for me anyway, is illustrative to some of the problems for these other more traditional Euro games that are the trench coat games that I think you'll be discussing. So I think it's valuable as an intro, if nothing else. Because when I remember playing Space Cadets a couple of times, and you have to explain to everybody what all their stations do, and there's all this stuff, and... For me, anyway, the only way I could focus on my task was to just focus on my task. And then that crew change or shift change card comes up. And everyone has to change positions and do something else. And at this point, there's like I've never seen anyone be like, cool, I get to now do the thing that I've been curious about and learn something new. They're always like, oh, I just thought I got the hang of this other thing. And I got to do this other rule system. Which is bizarre because it's supposed to be a light, fun, silly game. And at least it's themed as light, fun, and silly. And I've got nothing wrong with light, fun, silly themed games that turn out to be very crunchy. But it's not like it's crunchy. It's just a lot of stuff thrown at the wall. And to my mind, that's one of the reasons why I don't like a lot of these trench coat games of different mechanisms stacked together under a trench coat pretending to be a single game. It's not unified. It's a lot of stuff. The mental load overwhelms quality decision making. I'm going to push back a little bit on that later, but like you said, I'm going to be, like I said, I'm going to be concentrating on games where you can concentrate on a totally different aspect of the game than the other players. And you can play through it the whole game, just concentrating on this one area and still be competitive or something completely different than you did the last time you played it and still be competitive and still play, you know, be part of that game. Let's start talking about specifics. Why don't you start by talking about what are these trench coat games you like? Well, I want to talk about some of the originals, I think. I don't know if these are original. Like, okay. Sort of like uh, Shadows Over Camelot, right? They have this unified you know, mm. deck, and you use the same deck, and you went around to these different spaces on the board, and you played all these different little, you know, ways to use the cards, different ways to play, and, you know, it... it all came together. You couldn't sort of, if that doesn't totally, you know, lock into what I'm saying. You couldn't just, you know, play your whole game at one area. You could, yep. but it wouldn't be 
anyway, and then Queen's Gambit is another one where there are three different theaters and they're all completely different. Same sort of thing as uh, Shadows of Camelot. It had the unifying single deck. But in the Queen's Gamut, you could very well concentrate on one very hard and still win the game. It's true. Uh, I, I, I agree with you that they both fit the paradigm. I think the salient difference between, say, something like Shadows Over Camelot and Queen's Gambit, and I don't think you'd disagree, is that in Shadows Over Camelot, they just had these different venues for using the cards to try to just try to make sure that none of the cards were ever useless, as opposed to Queen's Gambit, which really did have these entirely different fleshed-out subsystems. Queen's Gambit, I always felt, was more interesting as, a, as an experiment than an actual game. It was kind of fun to see all these different ramshackle things kind of sort of fit together, but as far as an actual competitive game experience, the consensus is that in the Queen's Gambit, at the end of the day, it's all about that stupid duel on the power room. It's true. And it was the most fun for sure. Well, but that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to design these games and why I would argue that in many cases these, these kinds of games are not worth spending a lot of design effort on. Because in the case, if you're going to approach it something like Queen's Gambit, you've got to make sure that all of those areas are solidly, solidly balanced. Or you're just going to end up with whole subsystems that are entirely ignored. It's like Jade to a million. The fact that Jade isn't so hot in Gugong is only a minor problem because it's just one action space. As opposed to just an entire sub-minigame that's just not worth your time. So the rest of my examples are all games that have come out very recently. So I have Beyond the Sun on here. It's not the greatest example, but I think it is. I think you could, and I think in our earlier games, some of us did play most of the game in space and taking over planets and getting a lot of victory points that way, as opposed to the tech tree. So you could play the two different areas solely by themselves. Mm. Uh, wow, interesting. So I think this is one of those cases where this is a difference of degree rather than of kind. But to my mind, uh, Beyond the Sun is far too integrated and has far too many subsystems to qualify. Here's why. One of the reasons why is because many of the techs that you're developing on this tech tree have a serious impact on what you're doing on the planet board. How good are your ships? How often can you move them? Do you have any bonuses with respect to colonization? How often can you colonize? All those things with that sideboard are all determined by what your technology level is. Further to which, even if you, even if they were entirely separate, which they're not, we're only talking about two different sub-mechanisms here, which I, I, I wouldn't consider necessary. Like, if you have two raccoons stacked up in a trench coat, that's not, that's not a full trench coat, right? You need at least the third raccoon, I think. True. It was that's why it was my first one. So two. Oh, maybe. Oh, but wait. Vincent Adult Man was only two children in that in that trench coat, though. Clearly, I'm a hypocrite. Anyway, I'm going to be openly acknowledging my hypocr- hypocrisy later because I'm going to be saying one thing about one game that I don't like, and the same thing about another game that I do like. So uh, wait for it. So we've been playing a lot of, or I've been playing a lot of Praga Kaput Rigni lately, and it has a lot of different ways you can go for victory. You know, you could concentrate on the cathedral or the wall or, you know, partially both, or building the buildings. So it's all these little, you know, area majorities or moving up the tracks or trying to get more scoring opportunities. And that there's, there are completely different ways to play the game. And, I, and I'm not sure if it's one of these system mastery things where you eventually you're going to just be doing all of them. Once you get good enough at the game, then you're going to be going up maximally on all of these tracks. I'm not sure. It's yet to be seen. 
I'm glad you brought up system mastery because I think that system mastery is at the root of some of these issues that I have with trench coat games. Because let me just explain what I mean. System mastery is generally speaking a pejorative description of a game whereby one of the significant barriers to entry is just understanding how to play the game at all as opposed to just playing the game well, right? On one extreme of the spectrum, you'd say you'd identify things like chess or go, simple rules, very easy to start playing, very, very difficult to play well, as opposed to other games where, again, this is just going to be pejorative. It's mostly about system mastery. The barrier to entry is high, but there's not a whole lot of game there. And I think you and I are mostly on the same page that most of the Tal Serta designs are squarely in that latter category. There are a fair number of GMT games that fall into that category because they don't have a strong development ethics the the, the way they ought to. Uh, I, I definitely put the coin games very firmly in that area where it's just about system mastery and not about quality decision making. But circling back to Praga Caput Regni, I've only played Praga Caput Regni twice, but I've played a lot of other Vladimir Suki games, and I have found them enjoyable, but ultimately disposable. You know, three to four times, and then I, I, I felt like I'd seen all I needed to see, because they tend to have fun systems to explore, but at the end of the day, they all get you to the same place in the same way, and so it ends up feeling like this smooth, this smoothening out sort of blandness in a very serious way. My favorite of his is probably Shipyard of that style. You know, there's all these different things you can do with your boats. You can make your boats this. You can flange them out with this. You can give them bling. You can give them hot tubs. You can give them time machines. You can race your boats. You can put your boats on pony shows. You can whatever. But at the end of the day, it's all like, well, I get three, four points here, I get four or five points there, and it just ends up feeling the same game after game, no matter what sub-mechanism I explore. Next up is a game that's also being compared to... Wait, you going to gonna push back or what? Uh, no, I'm, I'm totally agreeing with you. I think it's very much a system mastery, or in layman's terms, get good, and <laughs> and I, I 100% agree. But why is it that you enjoy exploring your own little corner of the sandbox in something like Praga Caput Regni, even if you acknowledge that maybe there are more sandboxes than the game needs. Well, I usually only do that in, in sort of, like, that's what the pushback was going to be. I think it's it's not so much a barrier as something that you can sort of lock onto in your first game and and concentrate on that one part of the game while watching other people do work on other parts of the game. And then once you play a second and third time, you're figuring out how these all intertwine together and how you can increase all of these different, you know, sub-mechanisms in in, you know, a better score. Right, and but and what I'm claiming is, and again, I, I don't have any specific bone to pick with Praga Caput Regni. I haven't played enough to come to this conclusion. What I'm saying is all too often the conclusion that I've come after getting to those third, fourth, fifth play when I've started to see the, 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 the forest and the trees is that it's ultimately not worth it. There's not multiple paths to victory in any substantive way. There's just various levers to pull that all amount to the same thing. Let me contrast that with another game that's very, very streamlined, but I think does have multiple paths to victory in a substantive way, but is typically not identified as such. Something like El Grande. El Grande, I would argue, has a much more substantive path to victory because if you get bogged down in one province, well, then it's a question of relocating and fighting another provinces yes it's all area majority contests and yes it's all scoring by the same metric and yes it's all using the same set of mechanisms but you're actually encouraged to have a strategic and tactical vision to be flexible and be able to push in different directions albeit under the same rules framework rather than having to internalize different rules frameworks and just being able to get from point a to point b 
True, it's two different ways to do it for sure. I'm glad you agree that one way is better than the other and that El Grande is an amazing game. And a game that's very similar to to uh, Prague that's been compared to is Bonfire, right? We've played Bonfire and it's another game that has, you know, multiple sections of boards that you can explore and try to manipulate points out of. There's the fate tiles, the boats, the paths and the lighting of the bonfires. And would you agree that this is yet another game where the, with with you know getting better at it it's all just going to rise together you know at the same level or is there a certain you know different little mini games that you can exploit and still have a decent score no i'm inclined to agree that bonfire definitely falls under the same pattern it's not steffenfeld that is worse because steffenfeld is an interesting example and he's he's one of the first designers that came to mind along with vladimir suki when you suggested this topic because the worst game i think ever that I've played in terms of a whole bunch of different mechanisms that by virtue of their difference led to a feeling of bland sameness, which is, you know, the worst of all possible worlds was Trajan. It's like, okay, well this scores triangularly. Okay. Well this scores arithmetically. Okay. Well this scores exponentially. This thing goes, the other thing, this token goes there and whatever. I mean, honestly, I don't need this level of superficial complexity for what's going on. Just exploit your clever mechanism. Have an idea. Have an idea that you want to exploit. Kind of like the way the card play works in Notre Dame. Notre Dame is not a brilliant game, but I think the early works of Steffenfeld were far more focused, far cleaner. Yeah, there are a number of different ways to score, but they didn't end up all feeling like these tacked-on, jumbled-together trench coat monstrosities. So, like, I would take In the Year of the Dragon or Notre Dame a million times over. I would even take Bonfire over something like a lot of the Vladimir Suki games or Steffenfeld's worst examples, again, Trajan being, I think, the paradigmatic example. And I have Great Western Trail down here as well. I've been playing a lot of it on Board Game Arena, and it seems as though the higher scores have either concentrated on moving, you know, the train way up the track, or a huge handful of cows, or tons of buildings. So, like, a concentrating on one part of a mini game in order to maximize your score. Again, I don't really have enough experience with Great Western Trail to really comment, but that sounds definitely consistent with some of the criticisms that I have heard online. Now, what do you think about Lords of Hellas? It does have multiple paths to victory, and I feel as though some of them are different, totally complete different game ways to play the game, like the fighting of the monsters, you're increasing your heroes, getting them stronger, uh, you know, taking the the different territories or building the monuments. I think this is all, it's not just choosing one over the other. It's building towards one or the other. Lords of Hellas, I think is a great example of a game that gets some of these balance issues. And I mean, balance in terms of competing mechanistic claims, not necessarily balance in terms of game balance. Sometimes it gets the balance exactly right. And sometimes it gets the balance exactly wrong. An example of how it gets the balance exactly wrong is, as you said, Fighting Monsters, which is a minigame which feels totally divorced from most of the rest of the game. Not all of it, but most of the rest of the game. And as we've commented a number of times before, it just completely murders the tempo of the game. It grinds to a halt. Only one player is making decisions. There's some busy work involved. We still really like Lords of Hellas, but the monster fighting, although it fulfills an important role, just saps a lot of the enjoyment out of the game. In the intermediate level, you have something like the Blessings Draft, which comparably destroys the tempo of the game, but the Blessings Draft at least is slightly more interactive in that you're seeing what everyone else is getting, and you have to worry about the timing of the Blessings Draft, and everyone gets new toys, so there's a little bit more fun in that sense. 
And finally, an area where I think it gets things mostly right is in the combat, because lots of troops on a map games have effectively combat minigames where you go off and do something instead of just a, a simple die roll resolution. Fantasy Flight was infamous for many years of having these elaborated combat minigames. The one in Lords of Hellas is not particularly elaborate or cumbersome. And one of the things that I like about it is that it implicates a lot of other elements of the game. Namely, what combat cards you have might be a function of how strong your hero is. How often you engage in combat and on what terms might be a function of how good your leadership is. How many armies you have is a function of your overall board presence, etc., 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 etc. So a lot of different elements come in and touch and reach a fulcrum and a, a point of contact which means that despite the fact that other players aren't involved in the fight, it's just going to be two players fighting each other, it doesn't feel as divorced, as superfluous, as completely grafted on as those other elements do. Now I have a few others on here, but I think after hearing my, my initial ones out loud, I've talked myself out of them. Go for it. How about Witchstone? Witchstone, the whole board, is a bunch of different mini-games, but they're all sort of centered around choosing your action tiles and but I think you can lean into certain different aspects of the game. I do not think it's one of these ones where you can go maximum on, on all of them. I do think you have to choose a certain path to eke out your points. And so I think, you know, it might fall into this category. Well, that was one of my key criticisms of Witchstone. I thoroughly enjoyed the action mechanism and you are encouraged to specialize so you can get lots and lots of actions of the same type. But ultimately, I didn't feel that there was any substantive variety of getting your points from manipulating crystals on the one hand or going along the wand track on the other. It felt to me very much like what would happen if Reiner Knizia tried to do a Vladimir Sookie point salad type game. You know, a little bit of Sookie, a little bit of Seffenfeld, a little bit of Reiner Knizia. And, you know, I felt that the Knizia elements were overwhelmed. Now... Knizia isn't always immune to this. Now, this is a bit of a bit of a stretch, but sometimes I, you get echoes of this kind of unnecessary complexity in some of Knizia's scoring elements. People justifiably criticize Blue Lagoon for this, for, for example. You know, sometimes the scoring's triangular, and sometimes you're getting sets, and sometimes you want connections, and sometimes you want longest this or longest that. And I, I, I perfectly agree. That is the weakest element of Blue Lagoon. It's a marvelously simple game, but then when you start explaining the scoring, it's just a list of things. Compare that to some of his other genius scoring elements, like Samurai. Samurai's scoring mechanisms are fabulous. It's intricate and it's unique, but it's not just a list of different kinds of triangular versus arithmetic in increases in set collection. And so I, I think that uh, Kanitsi, even though he is, in my estimation, the greatest designer, he's sometimes guilty of some of the same design flaws that are characteristic of Trenchcoat games. Next, I have Merv that we've played, The Silk Road. So what the central mechanism is here mm -hmm. is moving around this the the town and trying to get crisscross sort of combos going and then there's all these different mini games along the outside building the walls going up the spice yep. track and all of these other things and i don't think the game lasts long enough to maximize all of these things out i think you do i agree i think you do have to choose in this one a certain way to go yeah, I remember when we played Merv, I just completely ignored the Moss track, and uh, I barely touched on some of the other tracks. I don't know that this necessarily... It's strange, though. I think this is proof positive that it is a trench coat game, not that it redeems it. I mean, the whether you've got a whole bunch of unnecessary kind of scattered, not cohesive, grafted-on mechanisms, I don't think a, a solid defense 
of or, or redemption of that notion is just that you have to engage with all of them. No, no, that was definitely not a defense. No. The related defense, although somewhat different, is not if you have to engage with all of them, but rather if they all come together in a unique, cohesive whole. And just because they all have the same action selection mechanism, I don't think is nearly enough to get you there. Agreed. And lastly, I have on here is Coffee Traders. I haven't, I've only played it a few mm. times, so I'm not big on it, but it is one of these things that has a huge number of things to do. You're, you're buying infrastructure in these different cooperatives. You're trying to do deliveries and contracts and you're going up this. Well, and while you're doing this, you're getting these tokens, which lets you go up this other track. And you're also supplying coffee to, uh, the coffee bars. So there's all these different levers to push and pull and, it is also another game that is only three turns long, and I think you sort of have to concentrate on certain parts and not be able to, you know, have everything rise together at the same time. To my mind, uh, as as important as identifying all these sort of trench coat games, whether or not you approve of that kind of design philosophy, equally illustrative, if not more illustrative, are the games that aren't trench coat games, despite the fact there is a lot going on. And to my mind, when I think of a, of a general category of games that might look to be in the same wheelhouse but are radically different than them, are splatter games. If you compare, say, Food Chain Magnate to, say, On Mars, right? And I, I don't want to pick on Vitalis all the time, but, but I do because, you know, I should. But in Food Chain Magnate, what you have are a relatively parsimonious set of interactions that lead to a huge variety of different game states. Rather than pizza and beer being differentiated by, you know, a different floating market of two different things and sub-mechanisms and a mini-game where you go to the pizza supplier who works on a different track than the beer supplier who works on a uh, an action, an auction mechanism, blah, blah, blah. You can think of ways to complicate games endlessly, right? Like, you can complicate the, the, the card game War by adding dice to it. doesn't make it a better game, it just makes it more complicated. Yeah, I, I was struggling to try to include Food Chain Magnet, actually, myself, but there's just no way. There's, like, there's just this huge disconnect between sub-mechanisms and, and mini-games, you know what I mean? It's, like, fine that has all these different things, but it all... Uh, interconnects and all comes together at the end to like a single path. Unlike these other games where there's like we already exactly. said that there's some that you could just completely either disregard and not use or just concentrate on one little tiny thing. So that's why there's no way I could, you know, even in a silly way, use food chain magnet as an example. Yeah. I think, I think most slaughter games are a perfect counterexample to what a, 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 a meaty sandbox that's decision rich can look like. Uh, other games that come to mind, and I just want to mention these briefly because uh, Senji, to my mind, is still one of the best examples of a game that has lots of different mechanisms, but that all come together beautifully in the, in the diplomacy system. Everything touches everything else, and so the complexity is earned by virtue of the fact that they're all deeply, deeply integrated. Uh, the same thing is true of Successor's 3rd Edition. It has a variety of different victory conditions, but they're all balanced against each other and they all touch different things. You know, there's legitimacy and there's there's just flat victory points, but the legitimacy influences both where you're going and how uh, what troops are loyal to you and a variety of other things. Still haven't played Successor's 4th Edition. My copy is sitting in upstate New York. I hope that they've preserved that. I, From what I understand, the rule set is mostly identical. Uh, but I think it's illustrative that some of these, I don't know if there's a pattern here, but some of these really 
really interesting examples, like Lords of Hellas, like Senji, like Successors, are basically multiplayer conflict troops on the map games. I wonder if there's something to that. So to wrap up for me, I I I like the trench coat sort of system. It really allows for replayability because you can come back to the game, play it completely differently. Every time you you go, you can combine some of these things together and do two or three or one or all of them together and do it all sorts of different ways. And I think it's sometimes easier to teach or i.e. easier to take in on your first game because, like I said, you can just concentrate on that one thing that you do understand and still maybe be competitive and or... Or the fact that that one thing is very easy, you can watch the rest of the game go on and sort of do your little thing and see how the rest of it works together and be ready for your next play. And now it's time to sum up my moment of complete hypocrisy, because I've been slagging on trench coat games this entire time, talking about how, well, you know, you could go after this sub-mechanism or that other sub-mechanism, you're going to get to the same place at the end of the day, it ends up feeling bland and samey. The counterexample to this is A Feast for Odin, which definitely has those same qualities as far as I'm concerned, and yet I love Feast for Odin and constantly keep coming back, but don't really find a whole lot of longevity to a lot of these other trench coat games. So there you go. No, I that's that's the that's the second game I tried I struggled to try to include. But it all funnels into putting the shapes on your board. So I I really just didn't think that there was That is not true. If you go for animal breeding they don't. They just go off to the side. If you focus on the professions, they go off to the side. I, I grant you that there's a little more cohesion in A Feast for Odin. But even if I grant you that, it's still a question of, well, would you like to go raid and get shapes? Would you like to go hunt whales for your shapes? Eh, arguably pretty trench It's true, 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 true. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, the hypocrite Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of Prospero Hall and His Grace, the Right Honorable Dr. Dr. Vincent Diesel, Earl... Sorry, I, I messed up his name. How could I do this? What an insult to the great man. His Grace, the Right Honorable Dr. Dr. Vincent, Baron of Diesel, Esquire OBE. Today we will be discussing the eighth movie in the series, The Fate of the Furious, as stylized as The Fate of the Furious. Walker, your comments. Dominic Toretto has just gone rogue. Listeners, I have but the following thing to, to observe. It used to be the case that this series was entirely ridiculous, but at least it had more than one female character who was not consigned to be fridged, murdered for the sake of male emotional development, and or consigned to motherhood and then sent off to the side. There were a whole series of women that were combat drivers, 
nope, that's not this franchise anymore, and there's no Han anymore, so what am I doing here? What am I doing here, Walker? I why am I still watching these movies, I, and why do our listeners want us to suffer? I don't know, because they hate us. I blame Frank. There's also no Mustangs. Zero out of ten. Unwatchable. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for Spike Presents Masterpiece Theater. Join us next week, where the suffering continues. Does it? Are we doing? Are we doing the Fast and Furious? Presents? There are two more movies, Walker. Are there? I don't. I, there's Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. Okay. And then there's then there's the ninth one. We have. We're, we're look. We signed on for a job. Okay. And we have no, to I just do wasn't it. sure if we're doing the Hobbs and Shaw, and, and the ninth is the newest. And do you one, know right? why? Because family, Walker. We have to do it because Cause, family. Cause family. Family comes first. Good lord. Oh dear lord. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.